Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. In the spring of 1804, a small expedition led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark set off from St. Louis to explore the American West. Over the course of the next two and a half years, this group traveled more than 8,000 miles up the Missouri River to its headwaters, crossing over the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific and back to St. Louis. Along the way, they encountered numerous Native American tribes, many of whom had never before seen Europeans. They discovered new plants and animal species unknown to science. And miraculously, they kept meticulous journals of their travels so that even today, we can read and follow along and experience their journey in a way that they experienced it. The expedition, also known as the Corps of Discovery, was an incredible accomplishment, and it required expert leadership skills from Lewis and Clark. Today, I've invited Jeff Tun, who teaches leadership to IT professionals, to talk about the expedition and share with us the leadership lessons and the life lessons we can take away from this incredible achievement. This story is so amazing, we couldn't fit it all into one episode, so we've divided it up over two episodes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Jeff Tun. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Jeff Tun, welcome to The Good Life. Hey, Sean. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Well, I'm excited about our conversation today. We're going to talk about the Lewis and Clark Expedition. And this is something that you've been studying for 20 years. You've written about it extensively. You've actually traveled the entire course, as I understand, of the expedition. And it's a story that I've been fascinated by. So maybe we could start with why you were attracted to the story originally and why we might be interested in looking and learning from this incredible adventure today. I think the story is amazing. I mean, first of all, it's such a, a monumental undertaking and such a monumental impact on the history of our country. But when you dig in and you actually read the journals that the captains and some of the men left behind, you find some incredibly interesting leadership lessons that are applicable today. And I think what started out as kind of a, a hobby, reading books and uh, following the trail really turned into a, a study of leadership. And I think that's why the story still resonates 200 and some odd years later. It's been compared to a moonshot in its time. So this is an expedition that happened in the early 18 hundreds between late 1803 to 1806 roundly and it was an expedition of a group of people that went all the way across where the United States is today to the Pacific and back and they only lost one person and they encountered just a number of amazing experiences and they went into territory which was completely unknown to European explorers and they kept journals along the way so i think all of those factors lead us to look at this event and say, wow, what happened here? And it's quite unique. So talk a little bit about the feat that they accomplished. Their expedition was a journey of about 8,000 miles, give or take. And when you look at just the 
physical nature of that, they went upstream against the Missouri River for a large portion of that, sometimes averaging eight miles a day or less as they pulled these boats that weighed tons upstream against this mighty Missouri. And probably there's a lot of your listeners that haven't seen the Missouri River but its flow is, it's incredibly powerful. It's hard to describe the power of water when you have it in that much volume. And these men were pulling those boats against that current and into uncharted, unknown territories and did it relatively peacefully as they went in among the native peoples and had encounters throughout that time. Just an incredible story of perseverance, of dedication, of team building. I think we'll touch on that as we talk about some of the the leadership lessons from this. But one of the things that makes this even more remarkable is this was not the first expedition to try to discover the Northwest Passage. There were three or four others that I recall that tried and failed for a wide variety of reasons. What made them successful? I think that's the study for us today is why were they successful when others had failed before them? Help our listeners understand the context, why this expedition was launched, what was going on in the country at the time. And Jefferson was involved. We had the Louisiana Purchase actually during this period. So what initially was the purpose of the mission and why did it get commissioned? Well, I think if you think back to 1800s, 1801, 1802, in that time frame, we were still a relatively young nation, just 25 some odd years removed from the formation of the United States. And the majority of the citizens of the U.S. lived still east of the Alleghenies and the Appalachians Mountains. Jefferson believed, as well as others believed, that the rivers were the lifeblood, if you will, to the Republic. We kind of knew the Mississippi River more or less at that time, but this Missouri River, people just didn't know where it went. And late 1790s, Gray discovered the mouth of the Columbia River over on the Pacific coast. He'd gone around South America and up the coast and discovered the mouth of the Columbia. So now we kind of had a couple of data points, right? We had the Missouri River where it meets the Mississippi, and we had the mouth of the Columbia. And the question was, did they connect in some way that we could have water travel across the majority of the United States and therefore trade, establish trade channels, not only with the native peoples, but also with the Far East. It would be far easier to get there going that way than to go completely around the African coast to the Far East. So that was the original piece. But Jefferson had this vision of a country that really spanned coast to coast. And he really believed that the United States could grow, that it would have more states. He was one of the few people that really had this concept of, no, Virginia just wouldn't keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We'd divide that into multiple states. So he had this vision, and that was really kind of his push to do that. It's a young country. We understand that the, the waterways are really the lifeblood of the commerce, of the economy and the flow of commerce. And we have this massive river flowing into the Mississippi we don't know much about. And Jefferson 
wants to know more and commissions a young staff member, his chief of staff, Meriwether Lewis, to lead a party up the Missouri River over whatever mountains are there and down the Columbia and establish this route. But with this huge territory of unknown landscape, unknown Native American tribes, potentially unknown animals to science and so forth in between. They really don't know what's there. So talk a little bit about Meriwether Lewis and what he did to start preparing for this expedition. Lewis was an interesting guy. He really had been focused on this journey for a good portion of his life, even before Jefferson brought him on board as his secretary, his chief of staff. He had volunteered to lead an expedition that Jefferson was arranging when he was 18 years old. And uh, Jefferson obviously did not select him at that time. So he had had a military background. That was one of the reasons Jefferson brought him on board as his chief of staff is he kind of wanted an inside person into the military. But one of the interesting things that Jefferson had Lewis do in preparation is go study. Jefferson sent him to spend time with some of the greatest minds of the time. He studied botany. He studied medicine, celestial navigation with the leading voices in those spaces at the time. What a great understudy to be able to work with Dr. Benjamin Rush and uh, Andrew Ellicott and some of those great men that were involved in the founding of our country. Lewis was right there with them, rubbing elbows with them, learning from them as he was preparing. And I think that also speaks to his character. He knew he didn't know everything, and he knew where some of the gaps in his knowledge were. And he did a couple of really interesting things to help fill in those gaps. One was, as I was just mentioning, go to study with the people that had that knowledge. But he also did something that was incredibly unusual. He reached out to an old army buddy, William Clark, and said, hey, would you be a co-captain with me? Now, imagine that you're in business today and your boss taps you to run a new department or a department within your company, and you go to him and say, ah, thank you very much for the honor, but I really need Joe to be my co-leader with me for that department. That's, in a sense, what Lewis did. Pretty audacious to do that, pretty vulnerable to do that, but it ended up being one of the greatest partnerships in the history of our country. Yeah, that's a fascinating decision. And the fact that it was successful is really interesting. I think we'll get into that as as we follow the expedition on their journey across the country. What was it that made that partnership successful? It reminds me a little bit of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak or some of the other successful pairings. You know, sometimes in business today, we see that. We see Bill Gates and Paul Allen or Sergey Brin and Larry Page, that sort of thing. It ended up being a great partnership in many ways. They complemented each other. And that decision very well could have been a number of, I'd say, 20 or 30 that ended up really impact the expedition in a big way. So he reaches out to William Clark. Clark accepts the two of them are co-captains, and then they start figuring out who's going to be on this permanent party. What I think is interesting about this part of the story is they're really inundated with young men and soldiers that want to join this expedition. This is like the place to be. A lot of people want to get on this expedition. 
in some records, it said 100 to 1 applicants to people selected. So they're interviewing lots of people. And they looked for, obviously, party members that had the right skills. But we also see at this time that they call them gentlemen's sons, sons of highly placed individuals, aristocrats, politicians that wanted their sons on this expedition that weren't necessarily ready to endure hard labor and do the hard work that it would take to pull these boats up the Missouri. And what I thought was quite interesting was they were able to really reject those applications. To put it in stark terms, they did not compromise their principles. They maintained the values and the expectations of what they expected of their men. And they went after the best people they could find, even if they were from a class of people that maybe were discriminated against at the time, and end up being several members of the expedition that were half Native American and half European. And because they had the skills, they were great hunters or guides or trackers, or they could speak Native American languages, they brought them on the expedition. And I think that speaks to their open-mindedness and their ability to be inclusive, which ended up also being a part of their success or contributing to their success. Absolutely. I, I think those months where Lewis is in Pittsburgh, he's in Harper's Ferry, as he's preparing, Clark has agreed to be his co-captain, and they begin this exchange of letters talking about the number of men that they would need, the skills that they would need. And I love the story that you just talked about, about the gentleman's son, because there's this great line from Clark in one of his letters that really points out he doesn't believe they're used to labor or something to that effect, which is going to be such a huge part of the expedition. They didn't need anybody that would not be able to pull their own weight, which kind of foreshadows a decision that they make later that we'll talk about. But this forming of the team, the other key thing that they did that really set the tone for this co-captaincy was they both had to agree on who they were bringing in, right? So even though Clark was in uh, Clarksville, Indiana area, he was already starting to recruit some of the men or at least talk to them, interview them beforehand. But even then, it was not until Lewis came down the river and they met, and then they could talk with some of these candidates that they finally made those decisions. So they did it together. One can only imagine some of the discussions that they probably had, because I'm sure they didn't always agree on either the selection of the men of the expedition or on some of the other things that went on in the expedition, but they were always united in front of the men. So as they gathered this party of expedition members in the late 1803 and early 1804, so that winter, they set up in a camp called Camp Dubois across the Mississippi River from where St. Louis is today. They could have stayed at another nearby army fort. They could have stayed in St. Louis. They instead commissioned or tasked their men to build their own fort because they knew they'd have to build forts on the way. So one of the things they did to build team that I find interesting is they started to lead by example, to practice the conditions that they would face on the expedition. They practiced packing their boats in the morning, unpacking them at night, setting up camp, building forts. They created or established competitions amongst the men to kind of keep them occupied, but also to find out who was the best marksman, who was the best hunter, and so forth. And you see this team sort of coming together that winter at Camp Dubois. And I think that's really what served as the most key part of their success, was this team building that they did over those months from 
call it December to May of 1803, 1804, as I recall, from when they built the fort. I love that you call that out, Sean, that they could have stayed somewhere else. Instead, they built that fort. They really had no idea at that point how many forts they were going to have to build along the trip. They had an idea of how long it would take them to get out there and get back, but they really had no concept of that. Well, they ended up building three forts, including Camp Dubois. And I I find it interesting that each fort had a different design. So they were continuing to learn as they went. This team building effort of laying down the rules of the camp, laying down the hierarchy. This was a military expedition, even though there was some civilian personnel that went along with them. By any stretch of the imagination, it was a military expedition. And gamifying is what we would call it today. They gamified some of the training. They had competition among the men to see who could shoot the best. They brought in some of the locals who were known as being very adept at shooting skills, at hunting skills, and they'd set them up in competition against the civilians from the surrounding areas just to challenge them to help them grow. That whole concept that you mentioned about loading and unloading the boats, again, they had no idea how long they were going to be gone, but every night, basically, they would have to unload the boat to set up camp, and every morning, they would have to reload it and head out. So they needed to be very efficient at that. The other thing that they had to learn was how to navigate the boat when it had tons of gear in it. And so they would take these excursions a short way up the Missouri, a short way up the Mississippi, just to see what it was like. How did it handle in this incredibly strong current when it had all this gear in it? So those six months, give or take, really set the foundation for their success. I think had they recruited this core and immediately started on their journey up the Missouri, I do not believe they would have been successful. Well, in the spring of 1804, they set out on the journey and they started up the Missouri. And as you mentioned, it was upstream. So they're going against the current and they get to a point where discipline sort of breaks down the first time. So you've got one of the men who is on guard duty. And again, keep in mind, they are going into unknown territory, could be hostile territory. In 1803, 1804, there was still a lot of uh, conflict between the Native peoples and the European Americans. So that was a concern. Animals were a concern. And so staying on guard was a vital part of your safety. What happened was, I think it was Collins, as I recall, one of them that was on guard duty. And so they had these barrels of whiskey that uh, each person had a daily ration of whiskey that they could drink. It was a gill of whiskey, which in our day is about five ounces. So you were allowed five ounces of whiskey a day, which is pretty good share. But they also knew that it was a limited supply. It was going to run out sometime, depending on how long that they were on this journey. And so what happened is one night while on guard duty, one of the guard decided to tap into the whiskey supply. And he first had a drink and then another drink and then another drink. And pretty soon he was pretty roaring drunk by my guess. And when the next guard came on to relieve him, they kind of just pitched in and started drinking together. So the camp wakes up the next morning and here's these two guys that 
not only risked their safety in a very real way by being drunk on duty, but sold whiskey that belonged to the group in general. I think it's interesting that they formed a court-martial, and it was made up of the captains, obviously, but it was also made up of the men. They did a court-martial trial, and they found these two guys guilty. I know this sounds harsh in today's world, but they found them guilty, and one of them got 100 lashes, and the other got 50 lashes. It goes back to some of the expectations that were set earlier that year in Camp de Bois about here's the rules of the camp, here's the expectations, here's the accountability, and here's the consequences. If you deviate from those, there are going to be consequences. And, and I think there's a great leadership lesson for us today that it goes beyond accountability. There has to be some sort of consequences. Now, I'm not suggesting lashes in the business world today, but people have to understand what happens when the team norms get broken. And the fact that they had everybody involved in this decision, it really was the team norms. It just wasn't the captain saying, oh, you broke a rule. It was the entire expedition that says, hey, that is not right. And you need to suffer some consequences. I think it's a great leadership lesson. And it speaks to this idea that you know sometimes in a team, people put their own self-interest above the team. It ends up jeopardizing the team in some way. A real team environment is where people put the team first, and it's about team success, not individual success. As a leader, if you see this happening, it's really incumbent on you to step in, reorient the team back to team success, identify and point out, this is not right. This behavior is not right. It's not what we agreed to. It's not living up to the values that we agreed to it as a team. It doesn't align with our mission and readjust and What's interesting is there were a few more court marshals as they moved up to Missouri that spring, but as far as the remainder of the expedition to the Pacific and back, they really didn't need to do it after that first spring. The culture had been established, and after that, they were a team. And so it ended up that they came out of this experience as a more cohesive team, as a stronger culture than they went into it. And that speaks to Lewis and Clark's leadership. I think the other thing on that accountability and the flogging is there. there's at least one story that the flogging took place in front of some Native Americans. And I can't remember exactly the exact concept, but the Native Americans were kind of horrified that they were flogging their own men. They made them run the gauntlet of switches. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting because we always as European Americans sometimes think the Native Americans as savage and brutal back in that day, right? That was the perception as Lewis and Clark were heading out on the expedition. And that wasn't always the case, right? That sometimes we were brutal as well to our own people. I just found that interesting. Now, the reason we know these details is the captains and the sergeants, kind of the next level down in the hierarchy, and even many of the privates were asked to, or commanded in some instances, to write a journal every night. And that decision, what it's left us is this legacy of over a a million words, I think, maybe more, of what happened during this expedition. And each night, we can imagine they sat around the campfire and they wrote in these journals and they were eventually published 
couple things about that. It gives us the record of the expedition, but I also think that it impacted the leadership because Lewis and Clark and the men in the party wrote every night. It forced them to reflect on the day, to think about what they learned, to think a little bit about how to apply that to what's coming up around the next bend. And I think it had a net positive impact on the culture and on their leadership. What do you think about the impact of the journals? I think you're exactly right. As you know, I'm a big proponent of journaling in general because it does force that reflection on the day's activities. It also gives you a record of going back and rereading what you were thinking and what you were feeling. And there's stories throughout the expedition where they would spend time copying the journals, especially over the winters where they encamped, they would make copies of the journals in case one copy got lost. So you can imagine them reflecting back on those even longer term than what happened today, but what happened six months ago and how does that change their views? So I think as leaders today, journaling is an important exercise that we can do ourselves to help us understand what's happening around us. I think the other thing that this became was, as you know, in a team environment, ritual is important. And one can imagine the ritual of sitting by the campfire, writing in your journal, potentially Krizat's playing his fiddle. So you've got some music playing around the campfire. And it's just a daily task that grounds you in something that feels normal and feels comfortable when everything around you is unknown and chaos. But that focus time, I think, was incredibly important for them to rest and reflect. But that ritual, that team building ritual, I think also enabled them to move forward into some really unbelievable circumstances. Let's get back to the trail here. So they're moving up the Missouri. They go through a few series of court martials to sort of instill this discipline and kind of get an understanding of the rules of how they're going to work and operate. And they knew they were going to encounter Native American tribes. This was something Jefferson anticipated and wanted the expedition to establish peace with each tribe that they interacted with to get to know the tribes in some way, get to know their customs. So they weren't there to conquer. They weren't there in any belligerent way, but it was sort of incumbent on them to try to establish peace. And as they worked their way up the river, their first tribe they came to was the Otto tribe. It went fairly smoothly. They established peace, but this tribe was a smaller tribe than the tribes further up the river. They warned the expedition. They said, as you go up the river, you're going to encounter another tribe. This tribe is not going to be happy to see you necessarily, especially if you're not going to trade with them. They're not going to allow you to move up the river. They're going to block this expedition. And I don't know exactly the reaction to Lewis and Clark to that. Maybe they waved it off. Oh, no big deal. We've got you know all these guns. We've got 45, 50 men. We should be fine. But they eventually did run into this tribe. And the tribe they were referring to was the Sioux and the Teton Sioux in particular. So maybe you could talk about that first, I'd say, intense encounter, potentially disastrous encounter with the a more hostile Native American tribe, the Teton Sioux. What happened there and what can we learn from Lewis and Clark and their leadership? I think you're right. It was a pivotal point that was still early in their journey because they could have been turned back. This was not the first time 
that people had gone up the Missouri River and encountered the Teton Sioux only to be sent back to St. Louis. The Teton Sioux really kind of set up, we call it today a toll booth, right? You got to pay a toll or we're not going to let you pass. And this was around uh, close to Pierre, South Dakota in today's world. And they did. They encountered the Teton Sioux. They stopped to have their, what they were hoping would be their normal talks with them to talk about the great father in Washington and exchange beads and peace medals. And what the Teton Sioux were really interested in was the whiskey and the guns. They were not going to let them pass. And this encounter grew very, very tense. At first, they invited some of the chiefs on board the boat, the keel boat, and, you know, everything was going okay, more or less. But then when they wouldn't trade for the, the guns or the whiskey, tension started to escalate. And I think I recall one of the chiefs tried to take some things off the boat and was stopped. But in whatever case, they're letting the chiefs back on the shore. Clark is letting the chiefs back on the shore and they grab, the Native Americans grab the ropes of the boats. And then along the shoreline, numerous warriors appear looking down on the expedition. And I don't recall the exact numbers, but the Corps was very heavily outnumbered in this encounter. And I love the words that Clark uses to describe the situation. And he got hot. Think talking about his temper, right? And Clark was a redhead. So you can imagine him just getting red in the face with anger. But what was amazing about this, of all these men that are involved on both sides of this encounter, no one fired an errant rifle. No one fired an errant shot. They all followed the lead of those that were in charge, including the Corps of Discovery, Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery. Not one person took a shot that would have probably ended in death for most of the people there, including the Corps. It was one of the chiefs, uh, Black Buffalo, I believe, that really was the one that de-escalated things. He kind of said, well, our women and children really want to see some of the things on your boat. So if you let them on and see some of your things, then we'll let you go. And so eventually they were able to move on. But it very easily, if cooler heads had not prevailed, it very easily could have gone the other way. I agree. And fortunately, they passed their first big test in leadership and their first big test, the Corps of Discovery, which we should mention was the name that was attached to the expedition, the Corps of Discovery. So they moved beyond the Teton Sioux, and it's getting later in the late summer, early fall of 1804. They get to, as winter setting in, to a, a gathering, a very large gathering, what happened every year in the plains in where's today is North Dakota, called the Mandan Villages. This was uh, several tribes, the Mandan and the Hidatsu would come together it was basically where they would spend the winter. These were tribes that hunted the buffalo on the plains, and during the winter, they couldn't hunt on the plains, so they would sort of hold up in this area. They were very peaceful tribes. The Corps of Discovery established peaceful relations with this tribe and decided to build the second of those three forts that you talked about there, Jeff. They called it Fort Mandan, and they spent the winter there. And it was a very, very harsh winter. But several things happened that winter that were interesting that I, I want to touch on. One is they signed on a young woman to the expedition in an interesting way. 
And maybe you could tell that story. And they also gathered some intelligence about what was to come. And I think it's important of the challenge and the adversity. You're talking about, well, we're going to spend the winter here. We've got a fort. But the snow was measured in feet, not inches. And they recorded temperatures as cold as 52 below zero. They probably were ill-prepared. The Mandan and the Hidatsu helped them through that time with maybe some, some furs and some ways to keep warm. But during the winter, they encountered this Frenchman, Toussaint Charbonneau. And Toussaint Charbonneau had two Indian wives. One was, I believe, a Mandan woman. And the other one was a young woman named Sacagawea. Sacagawea was about 15 or 16 years old at that time. She was Shoshone. And the Shoshone tribe, over the course of that winter, Lewis and Clark learned that the Shoshone tribe was the tribe basically at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, which they knew they were going to have to cross the Rocky Mountains. So they knew they would encounter the Shoshones. Well, since she was Shoshone, they thought, well, she would be able to serve as an interpreter when they got that far. And so they started talking with Charbonneau about hiring him on as a guide, as an interpreter, as a cook. In reading the journals, I forget who says it, but basically he had one redeeming quality, and that was he could cook a mean boudin blanc, which is a sausage. That's what he was known for. So I think it's interesting that they wanted Sacagawea to go along, but in order to do that, they had to hire Toussaint Charbonneau. And at one point, they actually get in an argument with Charbonneau, and he, uh, he takes his toys and goes home, so to speak, right? He packs up his stuff, moves out of the fort, goes, sets up camp somewhere and says, I'm not going, and if I go, I'm taking my other wife, not this one. And so they kind of made peace with him. But in the winter, I think in February that winter, Sacagawea gave birth to her son, who was named Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. All of a sudden, you've got this army corps of mostly military men, some civilians, but rough outdoorsmen. And now they're going to have a 16-year-old woman going with them and a couple-month-old baby going with them on this expedition. I just can't imagine the conversations that led up to that decision to do that. I think it ended up being one of those decisions that you're you don't know all the positive that's going to come out of it. You think you do. But as we see in the expedition, it ended up probably being one of the more pivotal decisions that they made to take her along. So they go outside of the conventional. They invite a young woman, a mother, and they allow her to bring along this young son. And they become something a little bit more than a military expedition in my mind. They become maybe something closer to a tribe or a family. I think it changed the culture a little bit. It certainly impacted their fate, as we'll find out later on, in many ways. So that winter, a couple other things happened I just want to touch on. They learned some intelligence from the Hidatsu and the Mandan about what was coming up on the Missouri. No European American or European explorer had ever been beyond the, into the upper Missouri, beyond Mandan. So it was completely unknown territory. I think Clark had a map, and it's sort of where the map ended. So this map of the United States at the time, first of all, the Missouri River itself was a dotted line because they really didn't know where it was going to go. 
but this whole expanse of the Western United States was labeled conjectural. That was part of the interesting piece of this expedition was filling in the blanks. Clark was the primary cartographer. I mentioned earlier that this was a journey of about 8,000 miles. So think about 4,000 miles one way. The map that he drew was only off by 40 miles. Just incredible because a lot of it was dead reckoning because their, their sextant or their octant, one of the two got broken along the way. Uh, so they're using compass and dead reckoning to do this. And he was only off by 40 miles out of 4,000. You know, they learned a lot from the Mandans over that winter. I mean, I forget exactly how many months they were there, but probably four, maybe five months before the river, the ice thawed enough in the river that they could move upstream. And they spent a lot of that time in conversation, talking with them about the journey ahead. The Mandan and the Hidatsu told them a lot about what they were going to experience. So they were a little more prepared than completely unknown. But, you know, when they left St. Louis, they thought they were going to find woolly mammoths still wandering around on the plains. They thought they might encounter redheaded Native Americans, descendants from Leif Erikson. So they had all these preconceived notions that, you know, maybe were countered by some of the information they learned from the Mandans. Maybe some of it wasn't. I think another leadership lesson for us is They were open to learn from the people that knew, and they were open to change their perspective on things as they moved and learned more throughout the expedition. They also learned that there would be a large waterfall, a great falls of the Missouri on the plains. And so they were aware that they would encounter a waterfall, and they knew if they, when they encountered that waterfall, they were on track, and that there was a several rivers that they would encounter coming into the Missouri, one very large one called the Yellowstone. So they were familiar with the Yellowstone River and a number of other rivers that the the Native Americans sort of gave them a heads up that they should be seeing these things. And they also were warned of a very large, aggressive animal, a bear. What they were referring to, of course, was the grizzly bear. Lewis and Clark and the Americans on the expedition had never encountered a grizzly bear before. So they had encountered black bears, which are quite passive compared to a grizzly bear. And they soon found out that the grizzly bear was not an animal to be messed with. A great example of uh, having a little too much hubris. They were really confident that this was just another bear. They encountered many grizzly bears over this stretch and would take multiple shots to down a bear. And there's stories of them having to run after shooting one of these animals because it just didn't slow him down. And at some point, Lewis writes in his journal something about, and I think the attraction to this animal in our men is satisfied. In other words, they'd had enough. And I, 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 I probably butchered that quote, but it's something to that effect, right? And I think that's a great picture of a lot of the discoveries of the animals they made. I mean, that's one of the things, this was an incredible scientific expedition. They were keeping track of all the plants and the animals that they'd never seen before, drawing pictures of them, killing them when they could, and sending them back. They sent a big shipment back from Fort Mandan before they departed that spring of some of the things that they had discovered. It was a huge wealth of scientific information that they uncovered on this journey as well. Weather improved in the spring of 1805, 
at Fort Mandan, the river eventually thawed because it had frozen over, as it did at that time traditionally in the wintertime. So the river started to thaw. They could navigate the river once again. And they, the large boat we were referring to, the keel boat, was turned around and sent back to St. Louis with a copy of the journals with many of the animals and plants that they had discovered up to this point. And that eventually made it all the way back to Monticello, where Jefferson lived. He was very delighted and excited to get that early shipment. So at that point, civilization knew that they'd made it to the Mandan villages. But the expedition itself was now reduced to what we call the permanent party. So we have 33 members in this permanent party, three of whom are a small family, Sacagawea and Toussaint Charbonneau and their young son, Jean-Baptiste. And don't forget the dog. Lewis also brought along his dog. And we should also mention that Clark brought along a slave. Clark came from a slave-owning family, and he had an African-American who he knew since boyhood. You get the feeling they were very close. I don't know the exact nature of their relationship, but they knew each other quite well. When the Native Americans met York, and they'd never seen an African-American before, they were quite taken by how physical he was and how strong he was. And they couldn't believe that his skin was black, and they, they would rub his skin and called him big medicine. So I would say a member of the expedition who maybe particularly served Clark and his interests, but was not what we think of as an African-American slave on a plantation. But I want to just paint the picture of where the expedition is at this point. It's the spring of 1805. They have 33 members. They send the rest of the party back down the river to St. Louis, and they embark up the river once again into this territory, which isn't completely unknown, but really has not been explored before. They think they can get to the Rocky Mountains, over the mountains, to the Pacific, and back to spend the next winter at Fort Mandan. That was their goal, and maybe even get all the way back to St. Louis. What happens next is really one of the greatest stories in American history. When we come back for part two, we're going to talk about that. Is there anything you want to tell the audience as we leave them and come back to talk about part two? No, I think that is a great cliffhanger because there were several events on this part of the journey out and back to the ocean. Spoiler alert, it took them a little longer than one season, but some amazing leadership lessons that we can pull from during that section. And one of the greatest coincidences in American history. I'll just leave you with that. Great. All right, Jeff. Well, until next time, thanks for being on the show. Certainly, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.